Incoming transmission. The Klingon word of the day is goo. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. So, this is a huge victory for the good guys. Scotty, beat me up. Resistance is futile. Live long and prosper. Peter Resume Podcast, the show covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old. I'm your host, writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. With appearances on The Tonight Show, Conan, Letterman, James Corden, Seth Meyers, Comedy Central, Last Comic Standing, and America's Got Talent, his first album, Vegan Mind Meld, was one of iTunes' top 10 comedy albums of the year, and his newest album, AKA, debuted at number one. Among other things, he's still human. It's Mike Kaplan! Yay! Mike Kaplan! <laughs> Hi, Thanks man. for having me. Hello. Oh, dude, much thank appreciated. You, thank you so much for carving out the time. I know you're, I, you gotta be busy. I mean, so like, uh, I mean, let's just dive right in. Uh, if, if you can't tell, Mike's a stand-up comedian <laughs> from that intro. But uh, how, how, was your, how was your sort of schedule and day-to-day affected by COVID? Because I've heard from like the locals and you kind of hear it from, you know, other uh, celebrity comedians for lack of a better term, celebrity comedians on their podcasts and whatnot of like what they had to do, but like, how, how did it affect you? Oh, sure. Uh, Well, I, in March of 2020 had a lot of things scheduled and then uh, stopped having those things scheduled or postponed, you know, and uh, I generally, you know, up until that point and since in a, you know, in a more, uh, a cautious way. Uh, my my life has been for the last 20 or so years uh, traveling to do comedy about half the time, living in New York uh, the mm-hmm. other half the time, you know, sometimes uh, give or take a little bit. But uh, obviously during uh, from March 2020 until vaccination, I did not travel anywhere, you know, uh, saw my mom only like a handful of times in a park, you know, and she lives just an hour away from me. Um, did a few comedy shows in parks, but other and did a bunch online, you know, Zoom shows, Instagram live shows, all all kinds. Uh, so that was something that was helpful because, like, for example, some of the colleges that I'd been booked to perform at, uh, they just switched to have an online show instead, which isn't, you know, isn't the same, but yeah. uh, I think is better than uh, no show. So it was I was fortunate to be able to. Uh, you know, continue to do what I do, what I enjoy doing, uh, but just from from home for a while uh, via, you know, it felt maybe more like a pod, live podcasting or performance art than yeah. uh, stand up proper. But I was, you know, I was writing, I was performing, I was riffing, I was enjoying uh, the best that I could. Uh, but I am also glad now that, uh, you know, things are as much as possible opening up safely healthily and i am but yeah it for the for the time of the the quarantine uh it impacted things uh completely yeah yeah i i I had some friends who 
got involved in, you know, the zoom shows, the online shows. And I was just kind of like, ah, that energy's not there. I, you know, you're going to have to structure your material differently. Like I, I come from it from the perspective of a writer. I actually started um, writing with uh, comic books and sort of fell backwards into standup. Um, but, you know, when stuff is so meticulously crafted, I feel like switching the venue sort of turns it on its head a little bit. Your stuff is pretty, is pretty, I would say very meticulously detailed, you know, very precise. Um, did you find that you had to sort of shift gears or structure it differently? Cause someone told me, it was like, oh, you just have to make it more conversational. And I was like, okay, that's, that's still very different than, you know, the standard thing. Did, did you, did you struggle with that at all? Uh, thanks for asking. I mean, I don't think, first of all, nobody has to do anything. So you don't, you don't want to do it. You don't have to do it. True. <laughs> uh, I, I found it in a way freeing that like, for example, if I told a joke that, uh, you know, 99% of the time audiences would laugh at, but on a zoom show where maybe people aren't even, uh, you know, unmuted, like you might get zero reaction from your objectively best joke which meant like i wasn't going to be doing you know my objectively best you know polished honed curated jokes for a lot of zoom shows but what that right. meant was i i i riffed a lot i used i was i talked about it didn't seem it made more sense to me to talk about what i was experiencing that moment that day because it was so far different so far from what my previous you know live performing and non-pandemic life was like and so i found myself like creating a lot of new material creating a lot of fun moments that might have only existed for that one audience in that one night you know some more intimate personal just like you know present experiences and yeah. so the way that i i found it was that uh if i said something brand new uh regardless of how people reacted it could do just as well as my greatest joke you know if if nobody's laughing at anything then you know then anything that you do is the funniest thing that you can say yeah yeah it's so funny because you know in trying to I, I like to look at people's material versus you know the things they say in a public forum and try to you know piece together okay where does you know art and life kind of intersect and how does that end up you know, with this 45 minutes to an hour polished thing. And, you know, I, it's so funny because there seems to be even like in small venues, like mostly around here, Greenville is, has a very small scene. It's, it's growing, but you know, we're, we're just, we're just getting going. Um, but the venues are pretty small. And even in those small venues, I feel like there's a disconnect with between the performer and the audience. And I feel like COVID was kind of that one chance of kind of like you either rose to the occasion and reached out to the audience of like, hey, I'm going through this with you or completely stand off and just kind of like to be continued. Like, is, was that the vibe? Uh, I, I mean, that sounds very reasonable. I guess I only having my own experience, like I wanted to continue doing what I was doing. I wanted to uh, perform and connect. And and so I found that, you know, a, a Zoom audience, like for the, in, for the most part, 
Like, they're there. I mean, anyone who's at a comedy show is hopefully there because they want to be. Yeah. But but in part as well, there might have been, you know, there might be some comedians who are like, I don't know, Zoom, Zoom comedy is not for me. Uh, so I'm not going to do it. And there might be audiences that are like, oh, yeah, that's not the same as live comedy either. So perhaps they both like self-selected to not be there. And then sometimes the Zoom audiences that I would have were like the most appreciative because they were the ones that, you know, needed and wanted to receive just as much as the comedians that were performing wanted to deliver. Like one example is the the Nowhere Comedy Club that, you know, sprung up. Uh, Steve Hofstetter, Ben Glebe, Chris Bowers. Like they had a daily show for a while. Uh, just like a call, I think the social distancing social club, they like fostered a community. Yeah. Uh, there were people like, you know, you could watch on YouTube for free. You could watch, you know, all over the place or you could, you know, contribute in a larger way and then be like audibly laughing and on camera and in in the in the community in like a more active way. And like some of those shows, like the first show I did of theirs was I did like just, you know, a five minute stand up set. And they, the laughter was, it was as close to a, a live show as I'd had in the pandemic, you know, and it was like, you know, a few weeks or a few months in or whatever it is. Um, and so since then, I mean, I just, I like, I've also, you know, I did like a bunch of Instagram lives where I would just have conversations with my friend, Liz Glazer, for example, and oh, I just yeah. love talking to Liz. Yeah. And, uh, and so it didn't even matter. Like we would look at the comments as they were rolling in and people would be hitting, you know, like heart emojis and stuff. But mostly we were just having a good time talking to each other because we love each other. <laughs> and we've also done versions of that, you know, in front of live audiences variously or in front of, you know, uh, a Zoom, an audible audience as opposed to uh, a non-audible audience. So the odd an audience is the part that means audible. So if you're not audible, are you an audience? Uh, <laughs> though maybe it's that you're audit you're auditing it but um <laughs> not paying full for the class or yeah. the the show but uh yeah so i felt that when i was doing uh like i actually started one, a new podcast during the pandemic that my girlfriend uh encouraged because she saw me do like uh, a nowhere comedy club show um in 2020 like sort of maybe a couple months into the pandemic and i i riffed just like you know not the whole time but a, a lot of the hour was stuff that i'd never said before or said in that way and she's like you just have a podcast where you do that all the time and and so i kind of there wasn't a lot of separation for me mentally as far as what's a comedy show what's a live podcast what's a this streaming what's a that streaming so i i felt like yeah i mean it's possible I can understand how some people might have wanted things uh, differently or, you know, backed away from it. But I I I felt like there was I, I was busy and like there was a lot going on, at least, you know, uh, on my computer screen, on my phones, a very, you know, I had to run across the apartment and be like, oh, man, I got to do a show on the iPad now, you know, quick. <laughs> uh, I got to I got to get off of this one 30 seconds earlier. But uh, yeah, I mean, I just while we were in the midst of it it was like oh is the is this it forever you know will this will there be what will there be when yeah um and so like it for me it was about making the best uh of the situation which then turned out to be great like if somebody's like hey do you want to do zero shows uh or like 
something that's more than a show, uh, more than no show, but less than uh, what you've been used to. Mm. I like I wanted I I want to do something, and so that yeah. is why I did something. Yeah, I think you know uh, a lot of the folks who couldn't either for for one reason or another couldn't seem to make the uh, the digital comedy scene work for them. I think ended up starting podcasts. I uh, I definitely fall into that category. Um, and a few other folks uh, over in uh, England, uh, the Red Shirts podcast, it's three British comedians just talking about Star Trek. And they've had me on a couple of times and they're just a really fun bunch. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of people all over the world who are uh, doing a similar thing. I think this is the new wave of podcasts uh, definitely started up during the pandemic. But one of the things, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, we talked a little bit about structuring material and all that stuff. And one of the things that um, drew me to reach out to you was you have some very uh, nerdy content in, in your material. I think uh, I heard the, uh, um, I have Sirius XM in my car and I was listening to Comedy Central and I think it had uh, the chop bit that included the Magneto jokes. Oh, sure. And I was like, is one of us? <laughs> I was like, I, I, I'm very well versed in the comic books. Uh, so uh, it prompted me to reach out to you and ask, uh, you know, hey, I've got this Star Trek podcast. Would you be down to come on? And of course, you graciously said yes. But then you followed up with, I'm not a big Star Trek fan. So uh, let me ask you, what what came first, your, your nerddom or comedy? Uh, thanks for asking. Let me think about that for a second. Also, I wouldn't, I mean, it's true that my, my relationship to Star Trek is I simply just don't, I haven't engaged with it that much. Like, I feel like saying I'm not a big fan, while that might be objectively technically true, I feel like has the connotation of, I don't like it. Like, oh, not a fan. Okay. Fair and, enough. Yeah. 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 And so I don't know what language I did use specifically, but I, I imagine it was, the truth is that I've seen some of the movies, uh, I've seen some of the episodes, but mm. my guess is that I've seen, you know, less than 50 hours of Star Trek content entirely. Okay. And it might even be, you know, like I've seen like the newest, like the J.J. Abrams movies and a few of the older movies, not all of them. Right. Uh, and then, you know, a, a sh an episode here or there. And whenever I watch them, I enjoy them like I've never I don't think I've ever watched a Star Trek anything and thought uh, this is bad or I don't understand it like I had a good time watching the episode that we're going to be talking about today like there's there's lots to like I I get it and it's just you know there's a in each human incarnation a limited amount of time mm. and I never had I just never had an experience with Star Trek I never watched one Star Trek thing that made me think I must watch every Star Trek thing. Right. Um, <laughs> and part of it might be that I've been at times in my life a bit of a completist and knowing that there is so much Star Trek. Like yeah. another example, uh, I have a lot of friends in my life who love Doctor Who. And at one point, uh, I think uh, I might have been dating somebody who was into it or mm -hmm. just I had a friend who was like, here's what you want to do. You want to start with watch this one episode. And it was an episode about these like, I don't know, statues that were angels that if you weren't looking at them, they'd move towards you. Right. Uh, the weeping like, angels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and it was cool it was really beautiful and then and then yeah. they were like and also hey watch this one about vincent van gogh and i and i watched it and it was beautiful yeah. and then but the idea to i was like where should i so should i there's so much of it there's like years and years decades yeah. worth of content and i'm like it's definitely and as a person like i would i'm the kind of person who would want to watch all of it but i'm like well the next best thing is watching none of it so <laughs> That's yeah. kind of where where I'm at with Star Trek as well. Like nobody's ever been like, uh, "Hey, here." I, I don't know. You know, like this is. I don't know if you're the person to ask because you're the one who's like, "Let's go episode by episode through all of it." But to create, you know, a list of like, if you're not gonna watch all of it, like, what what are what are what's the most? I I I'm curious. Like, what content? Like, how? What's the quantity of actual? Like, how many? dozens hundreds of hours are there and like if you had to let's say there was a thousand hours of star trek sure uh, i'm like okay what's the most important 50 give me give me yeah i think that's part of the fun thing with watching um some of these star trek podcasts and their presence on social media is a lot of that is kind of like hey here's our top 50 um here's the top 50 holodeck episodes or here's the top 50 aliens or you know or, or this top 50 that's crazy uh you know top 10 whatever and uh that's kind of something that i've been wanting to do once we get a little bit deeper in the franchise is to examine this and say okay it's been running since 66 <laughs> can we streamline this a bit to the to the bullet points what do i what do i need to watch what are the Sure. What, are the, what are the what are the what are the bangers you know and um i always feel like and uh, you know i feel like every fandom kind of has this thing where you try to do a best of list but i feel like the best of list is actually easier to put together backwards because you look at like those most important things that endured and then you can kind of work back from there okay well this person was in it so we need their stuff and they talk about this thing so we need those and if it doesn't fall into those categories, it's kind of like, okay, does it really need to be here at all? And you can sure. kind of weed things out from there. Oh, but, yeah. Um, like, yeah. Uh, so this, will, I think, will be relevant to both what you're saying and the question that you asked that I'm, you know, sort of taking us into the weeds on. But, like, I am a big, like, you know, I'm a comic book fan. Uh, and obviously today with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like there can be many people, it can be, there's a lot, it's more accessible, it's more mainstream. Right. Like, and I'm not like the nerdiest nerd that ever nerded, but like I've been reading, you know, I like picked up my first comic book. I, I used to read Archie comics, you know, tons of Archie comics, yeah. mad magazines and such. And then when I was, I don't know, like 10 or something, I was, uh, my uncle brought me to a comic book store and I saw the first Secret Wars, uh, like, you know, from like 1983 and it had yeah. all the characters on the cover. And I'm like, I like all the characters, you know, <laughs> I like Hulk and Spider-Man and X-Men and th these other ones are fine too. And, and so I, that, and I was just started buying comics cause they looked cool and then they seemed cool. And then I got into like eventually reading for who was writing them more than even like what they were about. Yeah. You know, like I always loved Spider-Man, but you know, I got the original like Marvel 
Marvel Masterworks, like, first 10 and read those. And, like, of course, they're, like, iconic and valuable, but also in a different context than, like, they're comic, Spider-Man comics that speak to me more that were written recently than ones that were written in the 60s. Right. Like, listening to Lenny Bruce now, you might be like, wow, that, he was important, probably. Def it seems, yeah. he, it seems like everyone liked him for a reason that makes sense. Whereas, God, that's like, such a great comparison. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, sure. Thank you. And, like, compared to, like, Carlin, you'd be like, oh, like, you can listen and engage immediately. You don't have to be like, now, what was funny about this? What do I have to know? So society was bad, you say? Okay, well, now <laughs> I get it. Um, and so I have, here's the thing. I love, I love Spider-Man, and I haven't read every Spider-Man comic, every of the hundreds and hundreds that exist. And I don't feel pressured to, maybe some, if I lived infinitely, then maybe I would. But, <laughs> yeah. Maybe in another life at some point. Uh, right. <laughs> but like right recently, like I loved, I love specific runs. Like I love Dan Slott's writing. So I loved when Dan Slott was writing that. And then I also, I never really read Silver Surfer until Dan Slott started writing. I'm like, I'm going to read all of his Silver Surfer. I'm going to yeah. read all of his Fantastic Four. I, so, uh, but I feel like, uh, so t to get to the, the question of like, I mean, my, I was certainly into comic books and sci-fi and other you know whatever might fall the things that that i'm into that fall under the nerd or dork umbrella like those certainly preceded my doing of comedy or even my being aware of comedy other than you know i watched snl when i was a kid and i saw a few comedy specials of like you know paul reiser seinfeld like norm yeah. mcdonald yeah um and so but i didn't i didn't become like I, you know, if I had known that a comedy nerd was a thing that could be become uh, eventually, like mm -hmm. then maybe I would have been. But, you know, I grew up pre-internet. And so I would, you know, I would just find eventually when, once like in the 90s when I got into like Mitch Hedberg and then I was like, oh, there's comedy CDs are great. And I go to used record stores. And so that did become like something that I got into. Uh, I mean, I guess it's funny. There's a there's a Lenny Bruce joke that I like a lot, actually, mm -hmm. uh, that I feel like is relevant to my experience here, which is he said, I'm not a comedian. I'm Lenny Bruce. And so, like, I'm not a nerd. I'm Mike Kaplan. And you're like, well, isn't Mike Kaplan like a subset of nerd? I'm like, yeah, but you don't understand. So uh, you, do, you, do you not understand the point of what I'm saying? I'm yeah. uh, making a Lenny Bruce reference. Okay, so the point is, um, <laughs> uh, and here's a, here's an even more, you know, when Lenny Bruce got really angry, he turned big and green. And that was Lenny Bruce Banner. So. <laughs> nice, nicely done. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I like, I remember, here's another sort of story that I'll talk to, speak a little bit to the point that we're, we're sort of circling around. Uh, I have glasses. I've had glasses for a long time. Like I, in high school, I got glasses when I was nine. And then in high school, uh, like a slightly older girl than me was like, Hey, take off those glasses. Let me see what you look like. And I took them off and she's like, you should get contacts. And so then I got contacts and then I wore contacts, you know, for a decade mm -hmm. until at, at some point when I was an adult, I was like, you know, like, I don't, I feel like the, the glasses, like I felt I felt at the time when I switched that I, it came out of insecurity. It came out of like, oh, I want to make people like me. I want to be attractive to people. I want this person found me attractive this way. Eventually, I came to understand, you know, that like 
glasses versus contacts were not like the main deciding factor of whether a person would be interested in spending time with me uh, right. potentially romantically and i was like you know it's actually much easier to just wear glasses and i like how I, there's cool glasses uh my girlfriend helped me pick out these glasses like they're fun uh and yeah you got some nice glasses yeah. and uh so but there was a time at which when I right I moved to New York in like 2008 when I was around must have been 30 around 30 years old uh and I remember a friend of mine a comedian at the time in 2008 was like hey do you think like you're, you're kind of like kind of rocking that like you know nerd look right you know that seems like it's pretty in right now kind of trendy so mm -hmm. like do you think I should get some glasses and I'm like these are for seeing you know what I mean like <laughs> need these <laughs> I wear like you can do it if you want but like I didn't I mean perhaps it was there was like some good good luck timing that like by the time i started telling jokes you know about comic book characters more and more people were becoming aware of them because of like the rising tide of mainstream comic book character understanding but i was like i'm just doing what i like uh, and what yeah. i need to like i'm buying this comic because it looks cool i'm watching these movies i'm getting these recommendations listening to these podcasts these tv shows like because they're what i'm into and and if somebody else from out out the outside is like nerd then i'm like okay like that's like doesn't you know maybe it would have like hurt my feelings when i was a kid and uh i was you know sadder and more sensitive to such a thing but uh there's many more damaging things that you can do or say to me uh than that four letter word so right, right. uh yeah so at this point uh yeah in fact I feel like here, I was just doing another podcast earlier today and this analogy arose for a different reason, but, mm. uh, you know, Voltron, the, the original Voltron that I saw was the, you know, five lions and, you know, there's robot lions and then they team up to become a big, uh, you know, main robot where each of the lions is one of their limbs or the torso and the head. Yeah. And the idea is like, okay, so that's Voltron is like, oh, are the five lions by themselves Voltron or it's only Voltron when it's, and it kind of like, look, they're lions, they join up and that's the thing that happens. I'm like, <laughs> okay, wait, okay. So when, when were you, when did you first, when was your nerdery born? Was it, did nerd happen before this or that? I'm like, Hey man, I'm, I'm on your podcast making jokes about Voltron. So, uh, I think we can just move forward. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, it's so fun because again, I, I always love to see, you know, how things were shaped and somebody very kindly, uh, called my style of comedy highbrow silly. Mm -hmm. I was like, that is Thank you. <laughs> and I think that comes from, I, um, I think uh, there was a little bit of the same as you. I, I, I grew up youngest of three boys. My next oldest brother was 13 years older than me. Wow. So yeah. Um, and our, my oldest brother's 20 years older than me. So by the time uh, my, the, the middle brother was in the demographic for Saturday Night Live, David Letterman, uh, Kids in the Hall, things like that, um, his four-year-old little brother was sitting right next to him, absorbing all of it. And, um, you know, so it was that at night after, you know, I would sneak into his room and watch TV with him. But during the day, it was Looney Tunes from the 40s, you know, and uh, one lump or two, oh, two, bam, bam, you know, that sort sure. of thing. That's and fun. that kind of ended up shaping me. And, you know, once I found comic books, because I hated I hated reading in school as a kid. It was just, it was being forced to read things you weren't into about people you were not interested in. It wasn't until much later when they let us pick 
books and biographies and autobiographies to do a report on them, you know, just pick somebody. Okay. And, you know, found some, you know, interesting characters. Harry Houdini. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great one. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I really enjoyed Dan Slott. His Spider-Man was so great. I was a big fan of uh, J. Michael Straczynski. Oh, sure. Loved loved that run. Of course, that happened, um, you know, middle of his run was 9-11. So like that kind of mm. changed all of that stuff. And oh, yeah. Uh, I loved uh, Eric Larson, like still to this day, uh, the Savage Dragon is the longest running comic that I've read, you know, from beginning. Oh, and cool. Yeah. yeah, he was I think he was the first uh, maybe he was the artist. Yeah, it was him and David Michelini, mm. uh, uh his run on Amazing Spider-Man. And then when he took over for the previous Todd McFarlane, just adjectiveless spider-man uh, <laughs> right <laughs> which uh, i guess that's not they didn't call it the adjectiveless spider-man and also i just wanted to while real quick uh on a joke topic uh, i grew up the oldest of one boy um <laughs> so also the youngest and nice. yeah. a, as it as it would be and and no girls oh, the oldest of uh, all <laughs> all one of me yep <laughs> but uh yes yeah, so I, I loved i loved eric larson he he also it's just so clearly like silly and fun loving but also taking it very seriously like it's it's really nice to see people i mean which is kind of like in some ways comedy itself anybody who takes comedy seriously as a profession like is doing something that could be silly in a fun way or, or right. sorry in a serious way somebody is doing taking silliness seriously though also i think some you know like Lenny Bruce, actually, I'm not familiar enough to be like, he wasn't silly at all. He probably was like, I mean, yeah. Carlin is a great example of somebody who's like, uh, you know, from one perspective, talking about like the the woes of the world, it, the most serious thing in humorous way. And then, you know, also, hey, word stuff and, uh, oh, and yeah. farts, you know, well, so well, I th it was so funny to, you know, I always point people to uh a his album amfm i was just mm -hmm. like that's kind of all you need to know about carlin in one album it's just this side is like the serious stuff and this side's the silly stuff and it's but it's all from this one dude and yeah i yeah. i had i had a bill cosby album growing up um that i played because i i love storytelling you know i love comics i love movies and the the art of storytelling is so it, it just just engages my brain like i a lot of people like to listen to certain music on their drive like especially on their morning commute i'll actually listen to stand up because i feel like that actually engages my brain more because i'm listening to what's being said but i'm also with all the uh stereotypical comedy rules you know things work better in threes you know hit that hard k sound all that stuff but i'm you know analyzing it's like okay they didn't do that there i wonder why if they did, if had they done it, would it have hit harder or would it have not worked? Would it have not fit the personality of the person, you know? And I just, I, that just gets my brain firing on my way to work. So by the time I get to work, I'm raring to go. But yeah. Um, and you mentioned people using the term nerd in a derogatory sense. I always feel kind of like there's, it, it. it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And, you know, so much of that is comedy, but like also... I've, you know, when I talking with someone like yourself, when I'm just like, oh, nerd, one of us. Yeah, there there's that vibe. But then there's other people in my in my life who are just like, oh, yeah, uh, so and so is kind of a nerd. I'm like, hey, dial it back. <laughs> you know, uh, here's a quick story. Do you know the comedian Nick Vatterot? That sounds vaguely familiar. Uh, well, 
highly recommended. Uh, he has a new special called Disingenuous that I think you'll like a lot. Mm. And his first album is also a masterpiece called For Amusement Only. And he's got a few late night sets that are really like innovative. And he's not, I mean, he's often just doing stand up, but he's often doing more than just stand up as well. And so he's, and he's a friend and I love him a lot. And one time I was out to lunch with a different friend, mm. uh, a woman who is not a comedian. Uh, and uh, in the course of the conversation, uh, it occurred to me, I was like, oh, do you not know, you, you should know, Nick Vatterat. You, I think you would really like Nick Vatterat. And I said, he's like a super funny weirdo. And then my, <laughs> my friend, she got, her face got kind of serious and she like reached out and like put her hand on my arm and she was like, Mike, I, I don't know how to tell you this. I'm like, I'm like, oh, I know I'm a weirdo. And she's like, oh, thank God, phew. I mean, I thought... <laughs> thought you were just saying that he like wow can you believe that that guy over there is weird meanwhile you're pointing with like a giant clown finger and uh <laughs> you know you're made of rainbows and i'm like oh i know all that yeah 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 <laughs> oh yeah yeah <laughs> we can smell our own <laughs> so yeah it that is uh i'm i'm happy to like the i guess you know the uh this old joke of yeah like you ask a fish like hey somebody's like hey how's the water and the fish is like what's water so i feel like uh there are certain aspects of a person's identity that like come from interaction with the external world. Maybe, you know, if not all, like so much, like, you know, whether could be things as uh, substantial as like, you know, gender or uh, sexuality or mm -hmm. uh, what have you in that department. But also like in this respect, like there are, I have a new joke uh, that's essentially about like, for example, I was going to say, you don't, you don't have to burn it here if you don't. Oh, no, no. I, okay. I'll, I'll, I'm just going to tell you about the joke. Okay, okay. Uh, and so there's a part of it that might be like, like I was thinking, I've been studying Buddhism. I'm not a Buddhist. Uh, I haven't taken any vows. Uh, like, I have a friend who is a, uh, I guess, an avowed Buddhist. He has taken layperson vows. He's not a monk, but he's like, I am a practicing Buddhist. And... Uh, I am not one, but though I, I love it a lot. And so people often ask me, like, are you Buddhist? You know, based on my talking about it as much as I do, which because I, I do care about it a lot. And uh, and so I'll say, I guess, you know, compared to like, I, I'm probably more, you know, if it's a spectrum and you can be more or less Buddhist, you know, mm -hmm. then I'm probably, you know, in some ways, because of my engagement with it, I'm more Buddhist than almost everyone in the world, you know, who hasn't engaged with it. Sure. Uh, but I'm less Buddhist than all the Buddhists. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. That makes sense. <laughs> and so similarly, like to most people, like to anyone who's, who's not listening to your podcast, to the, the jocks of the world. And obviously, you know, these days, you know, it's not that there's just a binary of like, you can only like sports or comic books. You can only like Star Trek or dumb thing, whatever. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, for whoever the people are that would use the word nerd pejoratively, derisively uh, as a as a weapon, like, yeah, to them. I'm, I'm certainly more of a nerd than them in this way, but there's also probably, like, I imagine you might have some fans that when they hear, like, this guy's not a Star Trek fan, uh, then this guy's not a nerd at all, I guess. <laughs> this guy's a massive Adonis. This guy's just you, like a You, you heard of that, boys? Yeah. Get him! <laughs> <laughs> Get him! A full box set of all the Star Trek stuff. Quick, <laughs> stat!
I mean, I have two. I might as yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I so it's the the reason I brought up the the fish uh, not knowing what water is. Like, mm. I get it. I get the assessment. But you know, like there are aspects of my identity that I think about more than others, and I'm just like, oh yeah, I'm just I. I read what I like to read and some of it and a lot of it's comic books from the library these days, you know? Yeah. A lot of, you know, the, it seems like the more hardcore nerds, which is funny to me because they tend to be the ones who consume the most of it. I feel like there's a big like standoff of like, I, no, the library, I'm going to the comic book shop. I'm going to own them. I'm like, okay, what else are you going to own in your life? Like a car or house? <laughs> um you know you might want to consider the library or digital those are very cheap oh, and yeah. fit on a tablet good stuff <laughs> yeah well you know you mentioned um things impacting someone's identity and personality that's kind of what we see happen to captain archer in this episode he he's he's on a very dedicated track with uh the zindi war uh you know especially after they attack earth which is we're slowly beginning to understand that the end of season two into this season season three of star trek enterprise was definitely the writers and production commenting on 9-11 because mm. enterprise started like less than two weeks after 9-11 happened oh wow yeah yeah so um they finally sort of you know once the dust started to settle a little bit they were like okay you know star trek has always been a commentary Let's start commenting. And um, this is where we see this begin at the very end of season two, the Zindi attack. They cut a new Grand Canyon in Florida and killed millions and millions of people. Um, but they're Floridians, so we're not, mm. too, we're not too worried about it. But, uh, you know, after that, Archer goes from explorer to man seeking vengeance. And him and the things that he goes through, it's so funny to see, I shouldn't say funny, but like, it's interesting to watch him be impacted with this element from the hatchery ship and how that affects him almost immediately. And with some, some severity to a point where he's got a mutiny on his hands. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think you're making great points. And also for, it's such an interesting episode. I mean, I'm sure you're going to say more about it, but the idea that like a lot of the things that he was saying when he was impacted were also reasonable things like, yeah. you know, let's help save lot like the lives of innocent babies, for example, sure. even if they're the babies of your enemy, like even if they're from Florida, right? Like <laughs> right. they, if when they're babies, they deserve uh, a chance, you know, to leave Florida or what have you. Um, <laughs> but like, sincerely, like, while I mean, I also understood when he was sprayed with the stuff, that like pro i it wasn't a big surprise when the you know the conclusion uh worked out the way that it did i i mean maybe at one point like i feel like i don't know if this is an homage to another like specific you know uh sci-fi like historical like a twilight zone or mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. different movie because it really you know other than the fact that these are these specific characters in this specific context like it seemed like uh a story that i have seen before in 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 various forms and i and i enjoyed it but i and the part that was really like 
cool was I was like, oh, like I feel like in they did a good job of finding a thing to be debated where it's like everybody has a good point. Almost everybody yeah. is right. Like what is, you know, right now, you know, like there I have some money in the bank that I'm grateful that I have that like throughout the pandemic, I was glad that I had some savings, like just because I wasn't making the money that I normally was. Of course. And like, that's, it's reasonable. You know, we, I think most people in a, you know, in a capitalistic society be like, yeah, it's a, it's good to have some savings if you can have it in the meantime, you know, I also like, try to have dollars on me as much as possible. And if anybody I'm walking past, uh, asked me for a dollar, like, I'm like, I'm, I can afford many dollars, you know, like, so I always am glad to have them to, because, and the money, you know, like anyone who has money in the bank, like for your future self, like that could help current people. And like, I also, you know, I do my best to like contribute to causes and, uh, and communities that, uh, that I think need it. Uh, but then the question often becomes like, I started, I read Peter Singer, the ethical philosopher, like when I was in my early twenties and he, he's like a, at least theoretically in a hardcore utilitarian. Um, and even more than theoretically, he's like, I mean, ethical philosophy isn't just to be, uh, isn't just to be like theorized about like ethical philosophy is about how to live. So it's like, oh, I guess it would be really good to live like this. Anyway, now to do a different thing. Uh, right. Like we got we got our <laughs> theories, but now back to uh, oppression. Now back to colonizing. Now back to continuing to, you know, eat meat at what have you. So like I was he was one of my first like forays into uh, like putting a, a voice to what would eventually become my veganism. Mm. But so that back to the the question of like philanthropy and charity and money he like i think the hardest version of his i read a book of his called the life you can save and it starts with like a philosophical thought experiment if you were walking by a pond and you saw a child drowning and you're the only one around you're almost everyone you're like you gonna go in that pond and save that child yes and what if it ruins your shoes and your suit or your whatever you're wearing? Like, I mean, child's life is worth more than a hundred bucks, a couple hundred bucks, whatever it is. How, how much is a child's life worth? And, but then if you have a couple hundred bucks to spare, there's children who are at least metaphorically, uh, if not literally drowning and dying all over the world. And so the question of when, like when, so his, the hard line, version of utilitarianism that he offers is uh, until everyone has the bare minimum to survive, give away everything you have until you get down to that bare minimum. He acknowledges that's not uh, a great sales pitch, that it's not going to have the desired outcome. Right. So he at, at the end of this book, he offers sort of like a uh, kind of a, a hierarchy, like a, like the way that our tax structure exists now that if you make a certain amount, then you pay a little more. If you don't make that much, then you pay less. If you make below a certain amount, you don't pay at all. And so similarly, I think if I remember correctly at the time, then the book came out some years ago, it was like, if you make 
$10 million a year or more, then you could stand to give away, I don't know, 30% of your wealth and you'll live fine on $7 million a year. Yeah. If, if you're making like, you know, 1 million a year, give 10% away. You'll be fine with 900,000. Right. If you're making, you know, a hundred thousand, you could make, you could make it on 95 and like below a certain amount. They're like, just, you can hold on to that because you're going to need it. Yeah. And, and he was like, mathematically, if people did this, then so many of the challenges that the world faces in, you know, shortages of like, because it's not that there's a shortage of food in the world. It's just that it's not in the places where the people who are hungry need it or clean water or, you know, disease treatment or what have you. Yeah. And so the question is like, oh, where, where, where does the line get drawn, you know, societally as well as personally, like in, so in the episode where one character is like, we need to do everything that we can to save these innocent lives, mm -hmm. even though we want to go help save other innocent lives later with the fuel that they need some of. And I mean, everyone's right. Like it's good. Save these lives if you can. And also, and it's kind of nice that in this particular world, they're like, okay, we made it. We're all in our right minds again. We're heading off. We've got our fuel and probably some, those babies, family, they'll show up and they'll be fine. And the ones that are alive, they'll stay alive. So good news. We thought that we had to choose, but we didn't, but yeah. <laughs> you know, it, I, for a while, like before the resolution, I mean, they were great. Like, and I, you know, this is my first episode of enterprise that I'd ever watched. Um, Love love a Scott Bakula, really enjoy. Right. Uh, big Quantum Leap fan and yes. uh, men of a certain age and uh, all the other whatevers. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> everything. I've seen everything he's done except for this. And uh, big Scott Bakula fan except for Enterprise. Uh, love, no, loved watching him. But uh, this is the, so I don't, I didn't know like the greater context of the the larger war story, like mm -hmm. the, the previous season leading into, I watched the previously on, you know, to make sure I understood uh, enough and who the people were. But, uh, but yeah, it's, I was like, I mean, to me, it could go almost any, like they could just stay there and they could have died. I, I assume they weren't probably going to die, but uh, like, if it were realistic, like that's a, that's a real like ethical quandary. Yeah. And I think, you know, as, as much grief as um, I've given the writers over the duration of this series so far, um, you know, and I've even gone as far as to say, you know, they're shooting on the Paramount lot. Could they not step over to the comedy store and just say, hey, we need some comedians for the writers. room? <laughs> um, but yeah, they they really hit some of these things, um, you know, these topics. And again, this show is 20 years old. So the episodes watch differently today than they did uh, early 2000s. And I didn't I didn't think that would be such a such a big thing until I started deep diving on each one of these and was like, oh, like some of the treatment of women is this oh this is problematic this is oh you know we've got some racist stuff in here too like oh geez this is very cringy but uh yeah it's it's been it's been a really it's been a long road getting from there to here uh but yeah so without further ado uh before we get too much deeper let's get to this week's recap spoiler alert spoiler alert spoiler alert, spoiler alert. <laughs> 
UPN Wednesday on an all-new Star Trek Enterprise. I'm sorry, Captain, I can't obey that order. You relieved this first officer. What has gone wrong to turn the crew and the captain against each other? I need officers who respect the chain of command and can follow orders. If he finds out what we're doing, we'll both end up in the brig. Star Trek Enterprise. Enterprise investigates a lifeless insectoid vessel that crashed on a barren planet, hoping to find helpful info in its computers. Archer leads an away team to explore the wreckage and discovers an insectoid hatchery. Ah, ah, he said it! He said it! With several dozen surviving eggs, but a failing biosupport system. He is sprayed in the face by one of the eggs. Doc Flox concludes it was a defense mechanism and treats him with an analgesic. Anal? What? Few dead insectoids and one of their shuttles are taken aboard Enterprise for analysis, and computer logs reveal the survivors cut off their own life support to save the ship's hatchery. That, that, there it is, there it is. Despite objections, Archer keeps Enterprise at the planet and orders Trip to repair the biosupport for the hatchery. That, 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 he said it. Incompatibilities with Starfleet portable power generators cause an overload, prematurely hatching one of the eggs, but Phlox can't save it. <laughs> Increasingly obsessive, Archer soon orders the transfer of one-third of Enterprise's antimatter supply to the Zindi ship so that full power can be restored. With the success of the mission in mind, T'Pol refuses to carry out his order, so Archer relieves her of duty and has her confined to quarters. Soon after, Reed, in control of the bridge, destroys an escaping Zindi ship. Archer relieves him as well, saying that the alien crew could have helped to save the eggs. Archer promotes Mako's Major Hayes to first officer. Uh? Hayes questions nothing about Archer's behavior and has his Mako's man several critical positions on the ship. Uh-oh, better get Mako! Archer orders Hoshi to prepare an insectoid language distress call. With time running out, Trip and Phlox conclude that a mutiny is in order, and they free T'Pol and Reed to help. Uh, that was a the Enterprise crew regained control of the bridge. And there was much rejoicing. Meanwhile, Tucker beams down and stuns Archer in the hatchery. Boy, that must smart. I know, I hate when that happens. Meanwhile, back on Enterprise, a thorough medical standby Phlox reveals that the egg had sprayed Archer with a nurturing hormone. Yuck. Making him focus on preserving the unborn insectoids. In the end, Archer is fully treated. Hayes confirms that he did not have a medical reason for thoughtlessly following questionable orders, and the ship resumes at full warp towards Azadi Prime. But that's next week's episode. Well, frickin' God! So, uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, something that stuck out to me was Hayes not questioning orders and not really thinking for himself. That's that very soldier-like mentality. Um, I actually have a background in law enforcement and kind of saw a little bit of that, uh, either from guys who came back from overseas and joined or couldn't get on with the military. So law enforcement was the next best, next best option. Um, but there was that idea of just kind of blindly following orders. And I feel like comics, uh, comedians, when they get in initially, it seems to be a lot of learn as you go. And I feel like a lot of, I feel like the vibe is kind of like, hey, the booker's telling you this, the promoter's telling you this, the host is telling you this, 
just do your material. We'll worry about, and we'll make sure you get a couple dollars. Uh, did you experience any of that? Like, coming up like earlier in your career, that idea of just kind of not really knowing what to do, where to go and just sort of blindly, like what time is the show? I'll be there. <laughs> like, did you experience a lot of that? Uh, good question. Uh, I'll first say the, fr the military aspect of the episode that mm -hmm. you just raised, I feel like is a great, like another good, uh, you know, not even that much of a metaphor for, you know, what goes on in life right but, uh, have you ever read the book the four tendencies by gretchen rubin no uh it's great it essentially uh she assesses that there are you know a set four basic not personality types but tendencies uh and it's there's a quadrant system sort of based on whether you are more motivated by internal or external sources. And so some people do both, some people do one, some people do the other, and some people do neither. And so she calls them upholders do both, questioners go internal, obligers do uh, external, take from external sources, and rebels do neither. The, uh, the joke she makes is that uh, the rebels basically like, you can't make me and neither can I. Um, <laughs> And, you know, if you see things through this paradigm, you'd be like, oh, wow, like I have some friends I'm like, yeah, it makes sense that like they they might be like, screw you, me. You can't tell me what to do to eat healthily or whatever it might be. Right. Um, and I'm you, you can take a test. It's pretty quick. And, you know, it's not to say it's a be all end all, but I, I have been assessed as a questioner and that makes sense to me. And like it doesn't mean that questioners like, you know, for example, like I don't drive extremely high above the speed limit I'm, i used to but i'm like oh there's a when there's a good reason for a rule then a questioner will be like oh that's a good reason to do the rule whereas an obliger will just be like more likely to be like i'm just gonna follow the rule because it's the rule right. and that is the way it seems to me that like a military structure works uh and as opposed to like you know i don't know i think it was was it martin luther king who's like you know if there's an unjust law, it's your duty to not follow it, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And the, which sort of comes up in, in Buddhism as well. Uh, like the, there's some religions that are more dogmatic, like just have, like have faith, don't question. And I feel like there are probably people like there's probably version, you know, there's version, I'm sure there's versions of Christianity and Judaism, uh, religions that I'm familiar with that are not merely just do it that are like about questioning about really why, why is this the thing to do? Why is this the thing that's said right. Buddhism specifically, the Buddha like offered 84,000 teachings and including at very specifically saying like don't do things just because i'm saying to do them like don't do it on faith like do it try it if it makes sense to you and if it works if it serves you if it if it seems like the thing to, then do it like but don't like he's like i think if you do these things then they might have these positive effects for you and the people around you but check for yourself like that's the thing to do where and so like in this episode it seemed like for sure the people uh in the crew like the the good guys who remained you know pure of heart and vision right uh are like i think this is the right thing to do even though our normally good boss is in like when they didn't know if he was we're like we got to check if he's incapacitated like what is 
what is the protocol when you're like, who is allowed to question? Who is allowed, like, there has to be some measure of, you know, like veto power or checks and balances in place so that there isn't just, you know, a fascist regime that develops. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so to answer now, that's, that's all stuff that I was thinking about before you even asked. To answer your question, I started out doing comedy in Boston and there was a Boston sort of like an ins, was at least an insular kind of scene at the time mm -hmm. where there was like an ecosystem in which comedians who had been there since the 80s. I was starting in like the early 2000s, like, you know, they've been there for a couple decades and there was like, you know, uh, I guess like not necessarily like different scenes, but like you could there was shows in New Hampshire. There was like circuits in Maine and Connecticut and Rhode Island. And like, after you were doing comedy for a little while, you could, you know, get the bookers information for these places and become an opener out there, kind of like on a mini version of becoming a road comic, not yeah. leaving like, you know, traveling the whole country, but traveling the New England region. And, but the, the, the good news about this with respect to what you're asking is that there were all of these veteran comedians, like mm -hmm. to use middle, military terminology, these, uh, which is weird though, because a veteran in the military is somebody who's out of it, not somebody who's still yeah. <laughs> doing it. But so there was these comedians who had been at it for decades mm -hmm. and they were, sometimes you'd be, they were doing shows around town. You get to do shows with them, you get to see them work, you get to talk to them afterwards at the bar. And there were a lot of really friendly, uh like you know people who loved comedy and wanted to offer you know their wisdom and what could help and i remember like very specifically like uh, a comedian or a couple comedians that were like here's what you do like with respect to this like there shouldn't be open mics on saturdays for example or friday nights because those are nights for paid comedy shows like professional comedians to earn money and if somebody starts an open mic at a bar on a saturday night that or like a good function room at a restaurant an open mic isn't going to be as good a show as a show that costs the money they might want to do it because it doesn't cost them money but then the people won't come back because the open mic isn't as good as if you lay out some hundreds of dollars get some good comedians there on a Saturday night then it's a room like it's a lack of forethought if you're like oh I just want to like get whatever I can right now not thinking about even yourself in the future if you're like a younger comedian you're like why can't I why don't I have a show for Saturday night well well get better and eventually yeah. you can <laughs> and so I feel like that was like one particular like guideline that was offered to me, like, you know, there, there was, so I feel like there was a lot of sort of informal, like guidance and mentoring from the older comedians of Boston who had been there and seen it work, you know, well and seen it work poorly and like, no, you know, the best circumstances for, you know, setting up lights and sound or the setup of a room yeah. and like just the idea of, you know, when to do a show, when not to do a show, what, what money is good. Like, you know, if somebody was like at the time, it was like, I don't know when I was starting out as an opener sometimes I get 50 bucks for, uh, for an opening set to do 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And that, they're like, yeah, that's fine. And I remember, here's the thing, uh, which kind of, okay, I'll say the thing. Like, so this one particular, you know, elder respected source comedian that I like looked up to who he had basically, I had internalized a thing that maybe he never even said specifically, but like, you should make at least 50 bucks when you're opening 50, if you're not, if you're getting, if they're only off in 25 bucks, like that's like, they're ripping you off. That's not, not the person like, I wouldn't do that. I would, I would say. And so I remember one time I got asked to open a show for 40 bucks and I was like, I think I remember asking like, Hey, could it be 50? 
and then they we were like never mind we'll get somebody else and yeah. so then i got <laughs> nothing but here's the thing and there's like an old maybe jackie mason joke or so, something like that where two older comedians are sitting around maybe one of them jackie mason and they're like hey you working where are you working saturday night he's like ah, i'm not working uh like they they offered me twelve hundred dollars but i don't work for less than sixteen hundred it's like oh so now you're doing nothing for nothing okay i mean but <laughs> I also understand yeah. that because like, let's say when I, before I had a college booking agent, like once I got a college booking agent, they like have a specific, you know, sort of schedule of uh, how much money you make when you, how much money they ask for. There's a range sometimes like, and sometimes they're like, this school really, they used all their budget. Could you do it for, you know, 20% less or 10% less than would ordinarily be? And like, that's fine if they're doing that, but sometimes you know, let's say my, the starting wage uh, as a comedian with no credits to do an hour of comedy at a college, I feel like it seemed like it was like a thousand dollars. That was like a good base price, like to, to get to, sometimes you might have to fly somewhere or drive somewhere, whatever it is, it could be a thousand plus hotel plus travel, whatever it is, but a good amount of money. Then there's some colleges that might, you know, be like, Hey, can we get you here for $300? And for some people they could maybe, but then if that, it's sort of like, you know, there's no union of comedians only, but it would be good in a way if there was one. Uh, and there have been people who've formed coalitions over time, and I feel like informally so, but it just, it makes sense that if there's a place that like, oh, we can have a show, we can have a comedian here for $300, then there, if people find that out, then, oh, then I guess all the shows are now $300 and not a thousand dollars. So it right. might, I've definitely turned down, you know, shows over the years where people were like, it'll pay in exposure for sure. Or it'll pay in it, this much money when it should be, you know, two, three, four times as much. Yeah. And even though like, it's nice to get paid to do comedy and I love doing what I do. I, there are shows that I do for free. There's plenty, like I'm not, I, uh, Brian Regan was on Mark Maron's podcast once and talked about how he, I think he, t he told the story of doing his first college gig mm -hmm. and he got a thousand dollars to do comedy. And then he drove back into New York city where he was living and he did a set late night at the comic strip or some comedy club and got paid $20 for his set. And he's like, what is my comedy worth? Is it worth a thousand dollars or $20? And yeah. <laughs> I've had experiences like that where one night in Boston, uh, years ago, I was opening uh at a thousand th seat theater for a, you know a famous comedian and i did a short amount of time and got paid a good amount of money and then i did a, a set where i was in the middle i was featuring at a mm -hmm. smaller club you know so a thousand seats now maybe like a hundred seats and i'm doing 20 minutes and getting paid slightly less i'm doing twice the time for half the money yep and then at late night i just went and did a show at a, a fun improv theater where i was headlining doing 30 or 40 minutes for free and that was like you know i was doing it because it was fun and useful and experimental and i was like you know working on new material so that there are always places uh anyway so that's to zoom back in or out i guess uh <laughs> there are i think I was raised in a comedy scene. I was incubated in a comedy scene that had uh, 
you know, if not the right rules or objective rules, at least some guidelines, some measures to start with until eventually then, you know, like, like the Buddha said, be like, oh, figure out what works for you. If, you know, if it makes sense to take a show for less money than you did on another time, like you're allowed to do that. If you want to not do a show, if you want to not do a Zoom comedy event, if you want to, if you do what you want to do, like eventually, like once you've had enough experience, but in the beginning, it is nice to have people that you, who are doing what you love, who are doing things in ways that make sense, who seem like they're adults, they know what they're doing, they have things that, and, but here's the thing is even that to like, to an extreme, like the time when I was like, hey, uh, can that $40 be $50? Like today, if that, if I were in that situation or if I were giving myself advice back then, obviously knowing what I know now, like it's fine that I didn't do it, but also it pro it would have, you know, it wouldn't, I wouldn't have been letting down the fraternity, you know, or the, the community if in that, in that one, and that's the thing though, also, you know, <laughs> uh, enough people do one thing and there could be a slippery slope, but in that particular instance, that $10 that I would or wouldn't have made, like, wouldn't be the be all end all the breaking the the bank of the situation. But uh, so I, I do think that but similarly, I was almost to military precision, following what I perceived as the orders of my superior comedy officer, because like, well, I don't know what's what the right thing is. But this guy said this and that makes sense to me. So I'm going to go along with that. And like we all, you know, we all don't get to do all of the research in every aspect of our life. And so we do we do get to decide, well, who's has somebody else been through this and can I apply their judgment because it makes sense to me in this situation? Sure. And like, like if that, if the next week I've been offered a similar deal, then maybe I would have gone the other way and been like, okay, yeah. Uh, like every once in a while, I feel like, you know, specifically asking for more money. If you think it's the fair thing, a lot of times it'll get you the more money that you think you deserve. And yeah. sometimes it'll get them to say, no, we can't do that. And then you get to decide, oh, well then do I want to do it for the less money? Or are they saying no forever and shutting down the door? But uh, yeah, to answer your question, uh, I guess the, the Boston comedy scene ran like a, a nonviolent, mostly military. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, when it comes to, the scene here in Greenville, as I mentioned, it's very small. If 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 we have if we have one mic on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, man, that's a great week. I mean, we've got our regular, you know, I think Monday and Wednesday are pretty regular, and we've got a few others sporadically, but um there's been times where uh and again, I have only been doing it for maybe a handful of years, but especially after that first wave of the pandemic there was that group that flooded the open mics with just like, I've been sitting at home doing nothing but watching Netflix stand up with the thought of I can do that. And a lot of them came with this notion of like, my special is I'll be nailing down that special next week, this time next week, I'm a star. And I always took that as a chance to approach and just say, without trying to dash dreams so much, but uh, a way to ask questions, you know, and question their own brain's orders of like, so, hey, what's your writing process like? Well, I just get up there and wing it. Oh, oh, because uh, you realize this is an exercise in repetitive 
refinement. Like this is, this is what this is. Uh, you don't just go up there and just be funny. It's, <laughs> I mean, some people do with varying degrees of success, but like, you know, what's your writing process like, uh, you know, what are you, you know, performance wise, what are you doing in, in terms of, you know, practicing? There's people who equate other types of performing to stand up. And while one might help the other, I, I, I don't think, I don't think one equates to the other because I I've had, I've talked with folks who are just like, oh, I'm not getting booked on shows. I have all this stage experience. I have all this film experience. I have all this whatever experience. And the question I always ask is, okay, so uh, what are your open mics like? Well, I don't do the open mics. Hmm. Okay, well then prepare to not get booked. <laughs> that's that's funny. Uh, here's three quick things. Number one, uh, I like that you don't go out trying to dash people's dreams. Dreams will dash on their own. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> number two, questions are great. Love, big fan of questions. Questions, yep like those mm. and uh number three i feel like the the thing you just described is like the reverse of uh mitch hedberg's hilarious joke about uh he's like getting to comedy and then they start asking you like oh uh, can you write can you act which is stuff that's like close to comedy but isn't exactly comedy yeah and he likens it to like you know uh, it's like uh, you work your whole life to get good at being a great chef and they're like oh man you're a great chef can you farm and <laughs> yeah <laughs> And so I feel like it's funny, like these people are like, look, I'm uh, I'm I'm a great farmer. So give me a chef job. Yeah. Yeah. There's that there's that thought of just I, I remember talking to with, with one person who they were like, uh, uh, it next month I'm filming three specials back to back. I said, really? That's impressive. Uh, how long have you been doing stand up? This is my third week. That, that's i would like okay. to see yeah i think a little bit of one of those specials yeah and he was he <laughs> the person offered me uh a, a a seat in the front row and i was just like oh oh um i think i'm busy then <laughs> i don't know that i can oh, God, oh i didn't when... even tell you when it when it is though yeah i'm uh, i'm busy yeah. for many nights <laughs> yeah most of i'm, most I'm busy of at nights night. yeah nights are busy for me <laughs> Hard to make it work. Yeah. Oh, I'm doing it during the day too. Yeah, days are days are even worse. Oh uh, yeah, days are even worse. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> it's like night, but with light. Yeah. Oh boy. Oh yeah. Well, uh, it's do you um do you have anybody in your life that has uh has been one of these military type guys uh, or someone who has that mentality close to you that you were able to observe? My my father served in Vietnam mm. um, and then became a Baptist minister. So mm. childhood was real fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, did you did you have anybody? I mean, aside from your uh, the mentors in the Boston comedy scene, which oh, I, I like, imagine those yeah. guys come off very uh, can come off very aggressive. Could. Yeah. So you mean the literal military? Um, I mean, my dad was he was in the national guard during the vietnam war uh oh. which was in part because he didn't want to you know uh have to kill people optimally yeah um yeah. and but yes and that is so i feel like my dad is not particularly militaristic um and so yeah i guess the answer is mainly no i can't really think of many people in my life, certainly not during my formative years. Like I'm an only child. My parents were both music teachers for most of my childhood, my life. 
um, my grandmother was a nurse. My other grandmother was a teacher. My grandfather, one I didn't know, and one was a music teacher as well. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so I just had a lot of, you know, a lot of teachers around me, I guess. No, that's great, though. And I mean, I, you know, not to, you know, pump you up some more, but like your your style is i've already said it, it very clean super sharp and so tight but as i was listening at, at one point um i was i was watching it on my tv but i found myself sort of turning and looking away from the screen just to hear just mm. to hear the cadence of the and it was it was almost musical and i was like and then, you know, I did, you know, die, you know, take a peek at your Wikipedia page to see that you do have music in your background and that you've done quite a bit of music. And I was like, oh man, all of this stuff is, is clicking together to, you know, to create the Mike Kaplan. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. I do. I think that, you know, the, like every comedian has some level of, you know, has a cadence, has a way of speaking, a way of delivering that, like, ideally is like, you know, theirs and theirs alone, you know, listen to a uh, Maria Bamford or a uh, yes. uh, Nate Bargetsy, you know, or uh, Brian like, Regan, and, Mitch Hedberg, you've mentioned course. already. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so I, I do think that uh, there's sort of another like kind of spectrum of like, in comedy, there's what you're saying, and then there's how you're saying it, you know, and mm. I mean, like Chris Rock, I feel like famously, will when he's trying out new material will try it out with as little performance as little emphasis on the delivery as possible just to get as as objective a read on mm. the content before he you know polishes off its final form right um and so i feel like when i started doing comedy i was much more focused on i i wasn't aware of this but i would assess now that i was more about the form than the function that is to say mm. i i was learning how to tell jokes i was learning how to say things without even really the thing that i was saying being important necessarily like some of the things i said were important to me or personal but some of them were just absurd some of them were you know pop culture related some of them were you know some of them were about like my divorce some of them were about my veganism some of them were about social issues that i care about and some of them were about how words sound like other words you know yeah <laughs> and they were all coming from me and like now my goal like in fact the, the most recent album that i put out aka i feel like is the I the way that I would say this uh and will say it is that like in the beginning I would my first albums were full of jokes that I care about a lot mm. and whatever they were about I really cared about and for the jokes and constructing them and presenting them and now I'm I'm work my goal is and I feel like this album is the best I've come close to having a bunch of jokes that I care about about things that I care about the most. Yeah. So like the content like matches the form in this case. Uh, and so cool. I think that some comedians start the other way. Some comedians start without knowing how to tell a joke at all, but they really know what they want to say. They really have a story to tell. They have a perspective, whether mm. it's political, whether it's a, a personal, you know, traumatic thing that they're trying to work through. And then eventually, like they, you know, the bet, ideally, they learn how to do it. They learn the how and then apply the how to the what. Whereas I feel like I started with the, uh, with the how, yeah, 
uh, what, whatever it is, I might have said it wrong, but <laughs> I started like not having a what, only having a how, and then eventually applying the how to the what, whereas other people start with a what and then learn how and uh, do it, do the other thing, whatever the yeah. opposite of what I just said was. I, I think I, I think I started with, because uh, I think I, I held off doing stand-up for so long, even though I respected stand-up so much. I I think I ended up being, I guess I'll call myself a student of comedy. Sure. <laughs> uh, but, you know, in just looking at like, okay, how they're standing, you know, okay, the microphone's in this hand at this time, but then they switch or they put it back in the stand to do an act out or they need both hands to do something else, uh, you know, and then not only, you know, the movement on stage, but uh, things that they're doing with their voice. We mentioned the cadence, you know, one of the one of the things, you know, I mentioned I listened to stand up on my way to work to sort of engage my brain. But part of a, a game that I do with myself is I specifically won't look at because the name comes up of who it is. I try to just hear just hear the first few words and see it's kind of a, you know, name, name that, that tune. tune. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> name that comic. Um, and I try to, you know, and I, I I think I think my average my average is pretty good, actually. But uh but yeah, you know, looking at all that stuff is just is so fascinating because, you know, in terms of what, uh, you know, in terms of what is happening in this episode of Enterprise, I'm bringing it back, Please. Um, and is, you know, f- folks are trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. And, you know, when they, d- you know, because every, um, every sailor, but every, you know, starship, uh, uh, Starfleet personnel, you know, mutiny is a, a dirty word like oh we don't we don't mutiny because the captain you know does the thing and they're and they're right and it's you know you have to you have to you follow the captain and they're you know they've got your best interest at mind in mind and when someone goes off the rails and starts actively working against the crew um you know that's when it's kind of left to the crew to say okay are we going to follow blindly like the makos did or are we going to say, all right, hey, look, you know, yeah, we've got these soldiers and the captain's gone off the rails, but we're scientists. We're going to figure this out. We're going to mutiny and we're going to we're going to fix it. Um, have you ever seen in comedy someone who has and I mean, I, I understand you're going to have to be if if the answer is yes, the names will obviously be <laughs> changed or omitted <laughs> to protect uh, to protect. But uh have you ever seen somebody go kind of off the rails and have everybody who was kind of on their side kind of go, no, we're going to, I'm busy that night, you know? <laughs> uh, uh, well, I guess uh, the first person who comes to mind is Michael Richards. And okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Very public. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, on a personal level, nothing springs to mind immediately i mean there are some comedians who have like taken turns towards like the alt-right you know and i love so this is not a comedian who's done that i love sam morell i think he's super funny yeah uh great great comedian great Mm -hmm. guy and he has a joke in one of his newer specials uh where he talks about the people he's like I forget the wording, but the content is like the people who seem like the most concerned about free speech are comedians and racists. And he's like, it's like an unfortunate, you know, pairing. Uh, But also for some comedians, it seems like uh, not as unfortunate to them, you know, like it's it's working for them. Um, 
and but also i feel like there is no you know there is no objective everyone agrees that this is the way to do things like yeah. almost anywhere um like what is the thing that i was just thinking about oh yeah another another buddhist reference uh tiknat han uh the buddhist monk who died recently and has written so many books that i've read and still so many that i haven't he talks sometimes about the concept of interbeing uh to say that like we all every every everything that exists uh we all inter are and by that he means for example if i if i understand correctly a flower like can't exist without water without sunlight without dirt like there's no way that a flower exists independent of other things that are quote unquote not that flower sometimes a bee can't survive without a flower and a flower can't survive without a bee they inter are everything is interdependent and like you and i we can't exist without our parents having existed we can't exist without food without water without you know the there's nothing in the universe that exists that exists independent on its own without any uh input or interaction with anything else like there's a concept called indra's net which i believe is like in a drop of dew like you know you can perhaps see a reflection of everything else in the universe like if you know everything about one thing then you could extrapolate everything else that in order for you know for us to be like this here, mm -hmm. everything had to be exactly the way it was in all the billions of years leading up to now. If something was different, you know, Ooh. right after the Big Bang, then everything would be different right now. And so I would say that uh, back to comedy, like there we, there are some, you know, there's there's a lot of different uh, communities within comedy, like subgroups of people who, and we. There's nobody who thinks exactly like I do. There's nobody who feels exactly like I do. But, you know, you find people that are like, oh, you seem to be, you know, on some of the same pages or at least in the same book as what I'm working on. So, like, I I resonate with you mm -hmm. and uh, and you resonate with me. Great. Um, and then so there are probably examples. <laughs> I could be the answer to this question that you're asking for somebody else, you know? <laughs> oh, OK. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and looking at and looking at those types of things, you you, you kind of see because stand up, you know, at the end of the day, still an art, still an art form. So while they're you know going off the rails, could be a Michael Richards situation, mm -hmm. could also be an Andy Kaufman, and it could they could be you know another word for going off the rails could be trendsetter. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, and, and it's hard. It's hard in that you know, with that to say, well, you're doing it wrong. Really? It, this is my art. Mm -hmm. This is, this is what I'm doing. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. Hey man, look, uh, this is my art. I'm recording three specials next week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. And to be fair, like there's a, do you know, Keith and the girl, the podcast? Uh, I've heard of it. It's uh, one of the longest running podcasts that I know of, and they're they're buddies of mine. Uh, and Keith Malley is a guy who used to do stand-up comedy regularly, but now has this daily radio show, and that is his like main creative enterprise. And also, every up until the pandemic, at least, every year on his birthday, which is April 15th, he would perform an hour of stand-up, having most of the time not performed any stand-up throughout the year, though, like uh... writing it in like the month or so or months leading up to it, you know, maybe 
not he i feel like when he's doing the radio show he's not like in, he's not explicitly working out material but he might be like oh what am i thinking about what am i talking about and maybe that'll be part of the thing and he's cre as a, a a friend of his who's a comedian there's a, some other comedians uh, that are also friends of his that are like that's not how you do comedy like you don't only do comedy once a year and record it as a dvd that's not ha only recording specials like that's not doing comedy and also he is making specials that are better than a lot of other specials he is a funny person and you know if you like him and if you're his fan then you don't need him to do uh comedy every night or yeah. more times like he gets to do things his way and other people get to be like if somebody says well he's not a real comedian well then that doesn't matter he's still he's doing he, he's not a comedian then he's keith malley you know uh yeah he, he's not he's not <laughs> lenny bruce and none of us are you know exactly. uh and so I feel like the the person like I'm listening to Alan Watts a lot recently, and he talks about Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism. And the thing about Taoism is that I think my understanding of the Tao is that is the way, you know, like the and there's no way to be out of it. Like there's no way like there's no way to move in time a different direction. There's no way for whatever we do, even if it feels like we're going against the grain, we're part of the universe. Uh, manifesting the way that it does mm -hmm. and like you know what wh whatever you feel about free will or determinism like you know you didn't in this lifetime you didn't choose to be born you didn't choose your parents you didn't choose like how you were treated before your memories formed you didn't choose how much you were fed or there were so many things that were out of your control that shaped who you are to the point that if you're like well now i'm in control well how are you in control now if everything that led to the control that you believe you have was not within your control and that's fine you can think that it, it doesn't matter yeah. but uh <laughs> the idea that like whatever whatever you call you don't have to you can call it whatever you want you can call it voltron you can call it lenny bruce you can call it keith malley like you get to like you said you get to do your art the way that you want to do it like that that young <laughs> the young special maker gets to make their art the way they want to do it maybe maybe in 10 years they'll release a special that cuts together like pieces of these three specials and they're like can you believe when i thought that this was the thing to do you know yeah yeah like, can, can you believe it wow i can isn't it great maybe they are going to be great who can say i'd love i i really am curious but yeah I, and so in in everything that I just said, in the context of, you know, of the Tao, the way uh, like there's truly in in at least in one way, not talking ethically, but mm -hmm. just talk, like there's no way to like grow your hair wrong. There's no way to breathe incorrectly. If you're breathing and living, you're doing it. Like, there's no way for a river to go down a mountain incorrectly. It's just yeah. that's the way that it goes. And so, but in that, the only thing that I would say is like the wrongest would be telling someone that you're doing it wrong. Like tell somebody like yelling at a river, like, hey, that's not the way to go down a hill. Back yeah. in my day, we had to, <laughs> rivers went uphill both ways, up, up and up and up, up and up to up, up and away. That was yeah. the, the Superman <laughs> river of my childhood. And also, <laughs> so the river is one with the Tao and also the person yelling at it is like, that's yeah. This, sort of like how in comedy, you know, uh, their freedom of speech is such that like, you know, Carlin and Lenny Bruce specifically went to jail for what they said. That yeah. was government censorship. 
that's against the law. That is that is anti-freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. Other when people are just upset at things that you say and they say things about how they're upset, that's also freedom of speech. Like you saying what you want to say and them saying what they want to say. If they say it like out loud during your set, surely then the private owner of the comedy venue can ask that person to leave, but that's not none of that is government getting involved. None of that is censorship. None of that is a free speech issue. Uh, unless the person is yelling fire, and then that is probably governmentally yeah. against the law as well. But uh, yeah, there's there's kind of no way to, uh, for art-wise, very little way to do it wrong. Yeah, and you know, in talking about in talking about that we are all connected, I think this is really the good a, a really good example of the crew sort of coming together without the captain of like okay. This, this element is out of commission, so we're going to have to band together. And I, I feel like the, I, 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 one of the things I've been saying this a lot to people who are pursuing artistic endeavors, uh, who have reached out to me either through the show or through comedy or whatever. And, uh, you know, I offer encouragement or advice where I can um, <laughs> with my limited experience. But, and, you know, when they're say hey, when they say hey man thank you so much it really means a lot to me I say hey look nobody gets there alone nobody gets there alone it, you know we all you know, we're all influenced by someone or someone else is going with us or we are going to someone or something along those lines and I think that's I think that's maybe sort of the outer edges of what you're talking about but I'm you know it's fascinating to me what these things because i don't because i don't have a lot of experience with buddhism uh taoism or anything like that my wife actually did study some of that in college she had nothing but good things to say about it so this is prompting me to probably look into some of that stuff and you know see that and i've said this before about about um star trek in terms of how it relates to the real world the idea of like hey look if we're if we as uh the human race stand a chance or the smallest sliver of hope of reaching the stars we actually have to reach sideways first (laughs) oh yeah that's that's beautiful and makes me think of these two things number one uh space related if not uh star trek specifically there's a carl sagan quote i love it's something like in order to create an apple pie from scratch you must first invent the universe uh, oh, wow. That's a great quote. I love it's a, that. It's a real good one. And the other thing uh, that I was thinking that you just reminded me of is also from Buddhism. So my friend Gus, who is a Buddhist and is my entry point, you know, into learning these things, mm. um, shared with me that. So one one aspect of Buddhism is that uh, things have been happening infinitely since beginningless time, they say that like what's happening now was caused by what was happening a moment ago, caused by a moment before that, a moment, and you can keep going back moment, 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 and there's nothing that doesn't have a cause. Like in different religions, they might be like, well, there's gotta be, it had to start. And in Buddhism, they're like, nope. Like the Dalai Lama was like, said a thing about the Big Bang. He's like, Big Bang, no problem. Just not first Big Bang. He's like, before something caused the Big Bang, before the Big Bang, another universe, another something. Yeah, oh, that um, makes sense. And so the the thing, I believe it is uh, impermanent phenomena, which is most of, you know, what we are, what we see, you know, mm. anything that we perceive with our senses for the most part. 
uh, impermanent phenomena are things that are also called products of causes and conditions, that mm. there are conditions uh, such that this is what why why what is happening now has been caused. And almost always it's that something from the moment before causes the thing in the moment now. But the reason that uh, that this occurs to me now is my friend Gus told me recently he said a thing in an email that made me ask this question. He said something about something that there could be that there were some causes that were simultaneous with their effects. And I was like, how how could that be? What is an example of that? And now I will offer you the example that he gave, which mm. I think is also beautiful and or beautiful. Um, Nice. <laughs> and goes along with the thing that you said about reaching out sideways. He said, like, imagine two playing cards, for example, uh, neither of which could stand, you know, straight up on their own on a table. But if you put them both together in, you know, like an A-frame, mm -hmm. then they can stand. They can, And so the cause of one card being at that angle is the other card being at that angle and the cause of that card being at that angle is the other card being so they were there now once they're there simultaneously causing the position of the other one so that it's not just from the past obviously the past got them into that position but once yeah. they're there it's a simultaneous cause of mutual support wow yeah, no, that's oh man, that's fascinating. I, <laughs> I, I can't wait to edit this episode so I can listen to this discussion again. Very um, nice. Oh, what? Here's a brief. Uh, what if you were like, man, I can't wait to edit this episode so I can take out all the stuff I don't understand. <laughs> There's a. I, I don't know if you've noticed. I have been taking notes. Oh yeah. <laughs> while, while you've been talking, it's like I need to get that book. <laughs> I need to get that book. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um. So uh, yeah, let's uh, let's because I, man, I could, I know you're pressed for time. So am I, I, I could, I could talk to you all night, but uh, let's, uh, let's move along to our uh, segment that we've lovingly titled, who do we blame? Mm -hmm. uh, this story was written by Andre Bormanis, uh, whose last work on the series was season three, episode three extinction, which was directed by LeVar Burton. Uh, we spoke about that uh, on episode 48 with poet comedian Moody Black. Ooh, I love all those words. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, it was also done by Mike Sussman, whose last work on the series was season three, episode 14, Stratagem, which we discussed on episode 60 with TTRPG writer-designer Josiah Martindale, uh, with Bormanis uh, doing the teleplay as well. The direct uh, This episode was directed by Michael Grossman, uh, this is his first um, his first work in the franchise, and he's got uh, some interesting credits here. I'll hit a few of them. Uh, Tales from the Hollywood Hills, Pat Hobby teamed with genius. That was his first gig in 1987 as a production assistant. Congrats. That, yeah, yeah. Everybody's got to start somewhere. Uh, but that was actually not too bad. It starred Christopher Lloyd and Colin Firth. That's a, a post Back to the Future, Christopher Lloyd. That must have been pretty hot. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Unless they filmed it before. Yeah. <laughs> uh, shortly after that was uh, Frankenstein General Hospital, which I got to find a copy of. That just sounds like too much fun. Uh, from 1988, uh, uh, 1988, he was a uh, assistant director on that. And uh, oh, that's and what AD means. I thought you're like, that was from 1988 AD. Oh, yeah. Know, in the year of our Lord. <laughs> in yeah. the year of our Lord. <laughs> um, he would continue on to second units and other AD spots uh, into the 90s. 
but his first directing gig was two episodes of Earth 2 from 1995. Then he did the Keenan and Kel movie, Two Heads mm-hmm. Are Better Than None. Uh, that was in 2000. Then he went on to 11 episodes of The Invisible Man in the early 2000s. Uh, season one, episode seven of Firefly. Very are nice. Fi- are you a Firefly fan? I am a Firefly fan. It's oh, it's such a good series. I, I really do enjoy it. We actually covered the uh, the pilot episode. We we nice. do uh, we do what I call Star Trek adjacent, and we talk about other uh, usually pilot episodes of other sci fi mm. franchises. Um, he also did uh, season seven, episode eleven of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That was is that the Sh- musical episode? No, okay, uh, no, that was called Once More with Feeling. But right, yeah, oh, yeah, that, um, and that was also in season six. I'm so sorry. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> Mike showing his colors. He is a big Buffy fan. <laughs> Buffy was my favorite show for quite a long time. Angel as well. Um, a friend of mine actually had a Buffy sort of like this show, but it was covering Buffy. He and his mm. wife uh, were doing it. it was called meet me at the bronze and uh it was it was a fun show unfortunately it was short-lived their schedules just didn't allow for them to uh record and edit and all the things that go with a podcast but yeah uh so anyway uh michael grossman also did four episodes of angel and uh this is his only franchise appearance to date uh he also after this he went on to uh turn in some work on charmed and eureka dc's legends of tomorrow and cobra kai have, cobra kai have, fantastic yeah isn't it great it. It's like, so fun it's better than it has any reason to be like mm-hmm. that it should not be that good <laughs> Uh, his most recent credit is Roswell, New Mexico, season four, episode six, Kiss from a Rose, premiering July 11th, 2022. Uh, guest stars, uh, we've seen uh, these familiar faces before, Stephen Culp and Daniel Day Kim as Major Hayes and Corporal Chang, respectively. But the really interesting part here is the production designer and the makeup effects supervisor, um, Herman Zimmerman, um, he designed the Zindi insectoid vessel, which we don't really get a lot of other sets other than the Enterprise interior sets. So uh, Zimmerman began working for NBC in 1965 as an assistant art director on Days of Our Lives. Uh, in the 70s, he served as an art director on shows like Sigmund and the Sea Monster, Land of the Lost, Far Out Space Nuts, and lost saucer and then zimmerman began working in the star trek franchise when he was hired to work on next gen he also worked on six of the star trek movies um final frontier undiscovered undiscovered country generations first contact insurrection and nemesis and uh, he was also the art director for deep space nine for which he received four emmy nominations and the art director's guild awards 1996 excellent excellence in production design award and uh zimmerman's final work for the franchise was the set of the enterprise wow i think you you deserve an award for saying all that (laughs) thank you (laughs) you get a zimmy thank you i I do try to deep dive as much as i can here um so the special effects you know part of everything that was going on you know again as as i said earlier nobody gets there alone it wasn't just uh herman zimmerman and uh the director michael grossman and the fantastic cast we also had michael westmore who was uh the head of the uh makeup effects team now uh michael westmore actually comes from a legendary hollywood family the west the westmore family uh very prominent in uh the hollywood makeup scene in fact 
they have their own Wikipedia page and it is mm. a fascinating read if you're into uh, sort of the behind the scenes of, you know, old Hollywood and Hollywood makeup and creature features and stuff like that. Um, Michael began working for Universal Studios in 1961 as a makeup artist and was promoted after three years to assistant department head of makeup. Uh, some of his earliest roles at Universal included The Munsters and Land of the Lost, probably with Herman Zimmerman. Uh, Michael worked uh, freelance during the 70s and 80s on a few little films like Rocky and Raging Bull. Oh, I've uh, heard of those. Yeah, yeah. The, the, it rings a bell uh, to start the round. And ding, ding, ding. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, he worked on makeup effects. Uh, excuse me. He worked on makeup sets for the CIA for operatives overseas to change their identities. This That's I, a real life thing? That is a real life thing. I was like, oh man. I, and I'm going to continue to look into that because that is just super fascinating. Um, Mike was hired in 1986 to work on Next Gen where one of his first assignments was the development of the makeup used on Brent Spiner to create the character of Mr. Data. Uh, he developed the makeup, makeup effects for the Ferengi and the Cardassians and the Jem Hadar. Um, uh, there's a race called the Cardassians. Car, yes, Cardassians uh, versus Cardassians. Okay, that's totally different. My my mistake. I True. can't understand why I thought one sounded like the other. It's Go a, on. Okay. They they are very very similar. In fact, uh, they're I'm quite trying a to few, keep up. You know. Yeah. No, no. There's quite a few memes out there that have the Cardassians wearing Cardassian makeup, and it's very glad to hear a, it. They're yeah. just delightful. <laughs> Uh, he would uh, he would go on to work on uh, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and of course Enterprise. Uh, Westmore was put uh, forward for a special Oscar in 1980 for his work on Raging Bull, and after it was turned down, there was such a reaction that a proper award was instituted during the following year. So his work kind of started the makeup effects. Oscar. Wow. Uh, Westmore won an Oscar for makeup in 1985 uh, for the film Mask starring Cher and has been nominated three other times. What are those three other times? I'm glad you asked. Uh, 2010, the year we make contact from 1984. Uh, the Clan of the Cave Bear from 1986, which I don't, I've never heard of that until I looked this up, but mm. probably um he really made them look like bears <laughs> and there's a lot of effects in that in that um uh, in those in that film for sure but definitely one of my favorite movie posters like mm. it's got a very young daryl hannah but with like stark white hair and this fascinating design painted on her face and it's i'm it's weird that a poster grabbed me that much but it's such a unique look uh, anyway uh the wow. third the third thing that he was nominated for an oscar for was star trek first contact in 1996 and uh he actually won nine emmy awards and was nominated this was the part that was uh that made my jaw drop he was nominated for at least one emmy every year from 1976 to 78 and from 1984 to 2005 so that's, my goodness he's that really is, been falling off yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh but anyways we love to deep dive on the character actors and some of the behind the scenes stuff i hope everybody enjoyed those little tidbits those little nuggets uh but let's get to our final thoughts and the big question mike kaplan is this episode of enterprise the the first episode you've ever watched is it essential viewing 
<laughs> I mean, for me, it is. Uh, I think I, and it's another example that's sort of like the uh, the spectrum of relativity, like for the Star Trek, for the non-Star Trek fan, it is not essential. Uh, but exactly. for the Star Trek fan, I I leave it to you. I'll I say it could go either way. I enjoyed watching it. Yeah, I, you know, I've talked uh, a few times about the journey of uh, Scott Bakula's character, Jonathan Archer, and especially starting with that season two finale, where we see the shift from Explorer to... Um, man seeking vengeance um we've seen him be take actions that are progressively less and less captainy mm. um and making some of these questionable decisions about uh you know questionable moral decisions and this this time you know actually through through no fault of his own it kind of comes to a head uh because we've seen even before this episode there were instances where you know, the ship was attacked by pirates and they learned that, oh, they're stuck in this section of space. So they're just trying to survive. But because Archer is so dedicated to his mission, they ended up capturing one of the pirates. And because they wouldn't give him the information he wanted, he tossed him in an airlock and hit mm. depressurize. And, <laughs> and one of his people was like, uh, Captain? And he goes, he's going to die. And he goes, not for another 20 seconds. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, we're seeing, we're seeing a different side of Archer here. Uh, oh so yeah, I think if you're, I think if you're really fascinated by the journey of the captain uh, of Archer specifically, I think this is an interesting look because it kind of shows like, Hey, you're our captain. You're our leader. We we've got your back to a point, but like, if things get too hairy, you know, we will take the ship back. And I mean, and it's impressive because the crew that took back the Enterprise aren't soldiers. They're scientists. They're explorers. They took it over from the soldiers. Mm. Um, so that was interesting to see, I, I, you know, maybe a little subtle commentary of like that. Maybe the soldier mentality isn't so great. Maybe we should be looking at facts and science. Uh draw whatever conclusions you'd like from that audience. <laughs> I, I like it. And I'll, also, I'll offer one more Buddhist analogy. There's a, a thing the Buddha said, I believe that uh, the bucket is not filled by the last drop. The bucket is not filled by the first drop. The bucket is filled by each drop. Huh. And so in order to have a full bucket of Star Trek watching experience, then you do need to watch each episode. But, uh, you know, if eventually you're like, oh, you, you can have a smaller bucket, uh, <laughs> let us know. Let us know what the essential uh, Star Trek water bucket is. But uh, for now, yeah, yeah <laughs> this is one, one of all. So awesome. Well, next week we will be joined by Lego mini Starfleet ship artist Chris Ames to discuss Enterprise Season 3, Episode 18, Azadi Prime, which of course is available exclusively on Paramount Plus. Mike, where can people see you do stand up, um, old stuff, new stuff, live stuff, and stuff on the internet? Sure. Thanks for asking. So, uh, my name is Mike Kaplan, spelled M Y Q K A P L A N. If you go to mikekaplan.com, that's uh, a nice central hub where you can find 
a lot of things like uh, my albums, uh, or if you just, you know, search in most uh, album purveying platforms. Uh, my most recent one is called AKA, and there's a number uh, going back to my first one, Vegan Mind Meld, which uh, has a Star Trek reference right in the title. Mm-hmm. Um, and the I, my special small dork and handsome is on amazon these days uh i also put out a newsletter uh full of fun units every week uh and more if you subscribe for more but you can get at least one free set of a few jokes and fun stuff every week at mikekaplan.substack.com my podcasts are called broccoli and ice cream and the faucet and uh, my live shows are uh tour dates are on my website and if you follow me on social media you can find out about those as well and i'm just at m-y-q-k-a-p-l-a-n on all those various social media sources and i think that that's i think that's about enough and i am at mr todd a davis on all of the socials from all of us at the computer resume podcast thank you so much for listening i'll see you in 10 forward Like, rate, review, and share on all your favorite platforms. Feel free to send us your subspace transmissions to computerresumepodcasts at gmail.com or at Computer Resume on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The Computer Resume podcast was created and produced by Mr. Todd A. Davis. Our logo was designed by Will Martin and Justin Bishop. The opening theme was produced by Justin Bishop, and our outro music was provided with permission by Dronode. Additional music was provided by Mr. Todd A. Davis and Gary Horn, and the voice of Computer Resume Podcast and executive producer, me, Kat Davis. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you next time. Going through a Star Trek. We're doing Star Trek stuff in space. We probably got some phasers and shuttle pods, and we're going to find a brand new race. How's that for a slice of fried gold?